Okay, welcome everybody to Free Trail Friday. Hope everybody's having a great end of your week. Welcome to our fun little Friday weekly live stream. I'm joined today by Dave Dombrow and Brian Bark. We're going to talk about the process of making trail footwear. These guys are, are very experienced on the product side of the running industry, and I'm really excited to hear all about the process of creating the most important piece of equipment that we all take out onto the trails every day from the concept and ideation of the product to the actual launch. It's going to be really fun. We're going to talk about the creative process, the challenges, the joy of seeing the footwear out on the trails on people's feet uh, and see that idea come into reality in physical form. If you've got questions for our guests today, please make sure to drop them in the chat. Let us know where you're writing in from. We're going to pull the best questions out of there, and I'm going to try to introduce them into the conversation today. Uh, we're going to have Dave and Brian introduce themselves in just a second. Before we get to it, a big thank you to Aura Ring, our sponsor of all of our Free Trail Friday live streams. I am rocking an 84 readiness score today, guys, so I should be in top form for our conversation. 85 heart rate variability last night, so... Good vibes for our Friday morning compliments of Aura Ring. For those who are watching or listening, please do take advantage of our special offer. You can find a link in the description here in YouTube or in the show notes of the podcast where you can get six months free subscription with a purchase of the new Gen 3 Ring. These things are super cool. I've been using them for four or five years from the first generation, and we are super appreciative to have Aura's support of Free Trail Friday. Also, speaking of products, check out my fire new trail culture crew neck. We just put these on the website yesterday, almost sold all our, sold out already. We've only got three size smalls left. So if you guys are in the market for some swag, please do visit freetrail.com and check out the, our e-commerce store and grab a hoodie or a crew neck or a t-shirt. We certainly do appreciate it and it helps keep the lights on here in my home podcast studio. Uh, but a big warm welcome to both Brian and Dave. Guys, I want to start with brief introductions to both of you. Dave has been on the podcast before. So Brian, we're going to start with you. Tell the people a little bit about yourself and uh, what your role is now over at Brooks. Morning, everyone. Uh, Dylan, thanks for having me on the show. It's an absolute pleasure and honor. Uh, excited to do this. Uh, my name is Brian Bark. I've, uh, I'm a Footwear innovation footwear developer at Brooks Running. Been with Brooks for about six and a half years. Uh, time definitely flies. So um, excited that uh, have the opportunity to kind of chat a little bit more about what makes footwear fun. Uh, but you know, live in Issaquah, Washington, about 15, 20 miles east of Seattle, um, and have a lot of local trails here to to romp around on. Um, been in the industry a total of nine-ish years, uh, all in product development and performance running. Um, so prior to Brooks, I was at New Balance for a few years where I cut my teeth and then moved out to the Pacific Northwest. And here you are. And we were just talking before we went live about how you bumped into our producer, Ryan Thrower, on the trails of Tiger Mountain. So Brian definitely does live the sport. And Dave, before we get to you, Brian, I just want to maybe follow up real quick because people rave about you in the sport. I don't know if you know that, but people, your reputation always precedes you. I mean, Hillary Allen did so just a couple of months ago on my podcast. You're also a great athlete yourself, but um, maybe just give a quick, uh, maybe introduction to some of the products that you've worked on over at Brooks that people are familiar with. Sure. Um, Specifically, while I've been on the innovation team, I've been part of the Blue Line process. And within the Blue Line team and process, uh, I've been able to have the pleasure to work on uh, the, uh, the Brooks Catamount, um, the Cascadia 16, um, the Hyperion Tempo, Hyperion Elite. So a good mix of road and trail product, but all kind of uh, cutting edge uh, new technologies, those sort of things. Okay, Dave, broadcasting from across town here in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> Maybe you've been on the podcast, like we said before, but give a, a brief introduction to yourself and your stalwart career in the industry. Sure. Uh, Dave Dombro, 
Portland, Oregon. Uh, let's see, co-founder of Speedland. Um, what can I tell you? Uh, been in the industry over 20 years. Nike, uh, Puma, um, Under Armour. Uh, done pretty much every type of product, but uh, Speedland focuses on uh, trail running. So uh, that's that's what that's what we're doing t- uh, today. And uh, yeah, what else? What else can I tell you? Dave? Well, Dave, you're you're being very uh, very modest. I mean, weren't you like the chief design officer at Under Armour? I mean, that's a very I, high level position, probably reporting directly to Kevin Plank. So maybe yeah. maybe uh, maybe brag about yourself a little bit more, could you? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I've worked. You know, I've, I've worked. Uh, you know, started as a designer, obviously in the industry, and then. Uh, you know, you work your way up through the ranks through senior designer, and then eventually you become a creative director of sorts and uh, creative director at different companies. And then, yes, eventually I was the chief design officer at uh, Under Armour. And in that case, I was covering um, pretty much every product they made. Um, but I wasn't necessarily designing every product. I was uh, lo- looking over uh, from a directional point of view. So it's interesting as the role changes through the years, your day-to-day changes uh, significantly as well. But you know, it all starts and all goes back to, for me, goes back to design and product. And uh, that's at the core of who I am. So. Heck yeah. So let's start with a broad understanding of what type of person is attracted into these roles, because a lot of people are really interested about how they get their start in the industry. And for me personally, I can say that my brain totally does not work like yours does. I'm somebody who's sort of a reading and writing and talking type person, if you can't tell, rather than sort of like a drawing and creative and designy type person. And so I want you guys to maybe provide some commentary on the nature versus nurture aspect of having that creative design oriented mind. Is it something that you were sort of born with and interested in from a young age? And then how did you sort of develop those skills over the course of your career? Maybe we'll start with you, Brian. Sure. Um, so I think first and foremost, it kind of comes down to uh, having a natural curiosity for how things are built or how things kind of come together. Um, I have a background in human factors engineering, um, which is a pretty fascinating field of study. And I think this just kind of uh, helped to facilitate my drive for better understanding product and humans interaction with product. Um, I've been a lifelong runner and I remember as, as kind of funny as it sounds uh, in high school, cross country, I had wondered at one point, like running shoes are pretty interesting. I wonder how they get built, but I kind of left the thought there and then went on to college and uh, did some stuff after college. And then eventually found my way into this industry, uh, not by accident, by uh, a lot of very focused networking and, um, you know, uh, kind of searching far and wide for opportunities that might allow me to uh, kind of cut my teeth in the industry. So, that's, but, but uh, it was yeah. born from like a, an early understanding that you were curious about how things work. Dave, do you sort of identify with that as well? Were you the type of kid who always was looking at cars and products and, things and wondering how they were made and how you could maybe create something like that yourself? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I grew up in Southern California in San Diego and uh, I was growing up in the kind of the BMX uh, skate world, I guess you would say. So I was the kid that was always tearing, tearing stuff apart, rebuilding it, customizing it, you know, repainting it. Uh, So, you know, for me where build meets art, um, was always kind of, uh, the center of who I was growing up. And, uh, you know, actually I always thought, cause you know, you don't know the, anything about design. Right. So I always thought I was gonna be an architect and, um, eventually found out about design and then realized, Oh, what's what, you know, <laughs> then you, once, once that path set, then, you know, there was no holding me back on that, on that path. But, um, but yeah, I, I was definitely tearing stuff apart, building it, um, you know, I guess some people would say, you know, that that's a tinkerer of sorts, but, um, but yeah, that, that was me growing up pretty much my whole life. And it actually still is. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, again, my brain does not work like that, but I have huge respect and admiration for the creative brains that 
make our sport possible with the great footwear products that are now on the market, compliments of people like you. Let's keep it basic for another quick question and let you guys kind of explain the org chart, the organizational structure within the companies that you've worked at. Dave, I know it's different for you now as a two-man shop here in Portland, (laughs) but I know there's like a difference between designers and developers within a traditional footwear team. So what is sort of that org chart? What does that org chart look like? And maybe aside from designers and developers, who are the other personnel required to kind of bring uh, a footwear product to market? at a traditional brand? Maybe Dave, you can start. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, org charter can, that can answer this a lot of different ways. I think I'll probably go right to, and maybe where um, Brian would go as well to the, the, the triad is kind of the core of the, the product team, right? So you have a developer, a designer and uh, uh, a marketing uh, representative, which is usually called a PLM. Um, of sorts, right? And and so that th- that's the team that kind of brings the product to life. Now, the, the truth is, there's another team um, which Brian also uh, has is currently working on or worked on in the past, um, which is um, works further out, right? So it's it's when you see a product, it's really not just the triad, but but they are kind of the core of bringing it to life. Let's say um, commercially. But uh, there's an innovation side um, at most brands, all brands that I've worked at and, and, and Brooks as well, where um, that technology gets fed into the, uh, into the pipeline, let's say, to the team. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so there's already a, usually a starting point, um, you know, where it comes from. So I don't know, Brian, Brian you can... You're in the innovation side more, so you can touch on that. Yeah, Brian, talk about innovation and and then also explain the difference between like a designer and developer, understanding that the PLM is kind of the the marketing voice in the room. What's the difference between a designer and a developer? And then talk about how innovation comes into the picture. Yeah, so I I think uh, to answer your question about developer, and I'll actually let Dave answer the design piece, Uh, (laughs) but uh, as a developer... You're kind of um, you're looking at the product from an engineering standpoint, construction, build materials. You oftentimes manage the communication with um, our factory partners or our R&D hubs located elsewhere in the world. Um, you're responsible for managing a lot of the, the physical property testing of materials. Um, you're doing a lot of interfacing with kind of these other functions. Um, and then uh, you also are managing kind of the cost of the shoe. Obviously you're working very closely with the triad uh, as they've alluded to the entire time. And I feel like um, at least for me, the most successful product that I've ever been able to work on is when you have an incredibly tight triad that's focused on the product. It's not about appeasing your individual functions. It's about being focused on the needs of the 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 athlete, the runner, uh, the product, um, and so that's that's basically what I do. Um, and then on the innovation side, uh, as Dave mentioned, yeah, we're usually working on technologies that are anywhere from three to five plus years out from seeing the light of day in market. Um, and you know, we'll kind of, you know, it'll serve as kind of a uh, we'll have this kind of roadmap of new foam compounds, uh, new materials, uh, other technologies that we want to kind of incubate, test, revise, uh, revise, and then uh, eventually do what we call a technology transfer to an inline team, uh, a team that's going to actually bring this to market. And so um, that's kind of how that process starts really far out. Um, And so uh, there's been a number of technologies I've, worked on when I first started an innovation that are just starting to see the light of day. And you're just like, wow, that was a long time ago. So um, things do take a while to get the market, especially when you're looking further out. Yeah. So cool. Great. That was an awesome and helpful summary of how it works. You know, the designer probably makes the sketches, draws it out, has the vision, the developer takes that vision and tries to put the pieces together practically with the materials, interfacing with the manufacturing team. PLM is the marketing voice. And then innovation is developing technology to hopefully feed it into that pipeline further on. Look at me. I've already got it. (laughs) I should add all those um, innovation technologies don't 
usually make it to the market. Yeah. (laughs) People think, oh, you're working on, you know, it's kind of one of those things you might work on 20 to get to five, Yeah. you know, uh, over a long period of time. So it's not a one-to-one ratio, which um, I don't know if that's understood, you know, throughout the the footwear community. Yeah. Yeah. It's like any, uh, any startup too. It's, there's more failures than successes. It's all about the batting average, I guess. So maybe, uh, just a broad question about our sport trail running, where we all sort of find our personal passions, uh, as people who have worked across different product categories, Dave, I know you were involved in everything over at Under Armour. Brian, you mentioned that you have been involved in some of the Hyperion road product there at Brooks and probably at New Balance as well. Any comments you can make about the ascendancy of trail and trail products within the category? Like maybe Brian, this is a good question for you. At Brooks, is there more um, is there more priority being placed behind trail product relative to road product as the sport continues to grow globally? Absolutely. I think um, Brooks is very deliberate with the decision, the strategic decisions they make in terms of how they want to focus on certain uh, runner archetypes or co- certain consumer groups. And trail is obviously, you know, it's no surprise that the sport continues to outpace the growth of the rest of the running population. Um, and there's a lot of white space from an innovation standpoint. Uh, you know, brands are doing amazing things, especially the things that you guys are doing at Speedland to really kind of set the bar high. Um, And so Brooks has really prioritized trail um, kind of from all points of view, from a product point of view, a marketing point of view, athlete point of view, um, and just, you know, getting all teams on board in terms of what is our point of view on trail? Because, you know, we have a long history with trail. You know, we've been working with Scott Jurek for you know, over a decade. And we have the history of a shoe like the Cascadia, but how do we continue to evolve and then modernize that uh, while at the same time bringing new trail shoes into the line, such as the Caldera and the Catamount that are addressing different parts of the trail community. And I think ultimately what we're trying to do at Brooks is provide a quiver. Um, So every shoe should be able to provide a benefit to a runner. So in theory, um, a, a trail runner could own every Brooks trail shoe and have their own specific use case for it. Um, yeah. That's great. Dave, anything to add? I think obviously we were just talking about innovation and Brian just mentioned that you guys are taking a different tact where innovation is kind of at the core of what you do. And obviously it's a hyper premium product that takes a very novel approach to the market. Any uh, comments about maybe your experience at Under Armour and how Trail was maybe um, part of things that you worked on or when you sensed sort of the opportunity within this subcategory of running as it relates to the the rest of the running uh, market? Yeah, I mean, I I feel, um, you know, and there's not exactly like... (laughs) hard data that's saying this, but I feel like now, you know, a lot of brands are um, putting a lot more emphasis on trail as recently, um, whether that's Brooks or Hoka or, you know, the list goes on. Um, But, you know, to be honest, I feel that trail has been a bit neglected, (laughs) if if I'm honest, uh, through the years. And that's part of the reason why um, Speedland went into it um, because I feel like a lot of the emphasis in R and D was being put into the road um, for a lot of reasons. One, it's a, it's a, at this time, still a much bigger business, but um, like Brian said, there's, it's trails growing rapidly. And so I think now brands are starting to put more emphasis there. Not that they weren't making good product before. I don't want that to um, come across what I was saying, but um, I think that now, uh, with, with everything that's going on with trail, uh, it's a different, it's not, you know, a trail and a road shoe are not the same thing. You shouldn't look at it the same way. And functionally they're, they're quite different too. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of times they were kind of lumped together and, um, that's at Speedland. That's why we're taking a very different approach. Yeah. Cool. So let's start going into the entire process of actually creating one of these products. And maybe Brian, we'll start with you. 
I know like the catamount that you've mentioned a couple of times was a new product. It wasn't like you were just iterating a Cascadia that has been around now since the early days of Scott Jurek and is probably the best-selling trail shoe of all time. Where does the process start to bring the catamount to market? What's the first step? What is the white space that you're targeting? Um, is, or is, there, is, is this a decree from sort of the product executives? What's the first step of creating the catamount as an example? Sure. Uh, going back about three years now, you know, it's when we first started to reignite uh, the energy around our um, our trail focus, and we had uh, built a new trail team. Um, you know, we, a lot of incredible athletes uh, from all parts of the community were pulled in, and and I think you know we we did like we had we looked at ourselves really well in the mirror. We, we kind of did a thorough inventory of, you know, what our current trail line looks like. And one thing that was clearly missing was something on the lighter, faster end that can be used more for racing. Um, and so generally speaking, we start with, um, a big investment into consumer insights, or in this case, it was athlete insights. So we wanted to build a shoe that would perform well at a race such as Western States, something a little bit more runnable, um, something that was fast and protective, but still could go the distance. And so um, the triad and I, we spent at least a few weeks uh, speaking with all the athletes um, about, you know, what your dream race shoe might be. And you kind of get a lot of um, you get a lot of answers because some people provide, you know, they prefer to have something that's much more cushioned, a little bit softer, uh, and other people want something super minimal, something low to the ground where they feel everything. And so you kind of had to take all of that into context and, and read between the lines to figure out like, okay, what's the product that we really need to deliver that, uh, these athletes are both, um, overtly asking for, but also addressing some, some needs that maybe they're not expressing specifically in these conversations. Um, so what are we kind of getting through um, some potential latent needs here? And so that's kind of how the process started. We just, we just spoke with all the athletes. We spoke with consumers, both in North America and Europe, and really tried to understand, okay, what is this opportunity that we have to add to the Brooks trail line? And given, you know, it is a brand new trail shoe, um, there was a lot of freedom in terms of where we could go, but, um, it kind of worked out well in the sense that it was a product I had the opportunity to work on while also being on the innovation team. And I was asked, you know, is there, do we, do we have a toolbox of, um, <laughs> do we have a, what, what does our toolbox look like in terms of technologies? And we had been working on the supercritical foam for, a little over a year and it provided kind of the perfect opportunity mm. to um, showcase this foam technology in this shoe. Cause we knew that the application would be perfect for trail. So cool. that's kind of where we started. Awesome. So once the consumer insights are there, how do you put pen to paper, Dave? Maybe talk about the speed land. I mean, you knew you saw this white space, you thought you wanted to bring innovation to it. Did you and Kevin start actually just drawing on paper? What's the, where does design get introduced? Kevin? Yeah. Well, in the case of Speedland, I guess we did a little different. We just started building, <laughs> which Hacking. I can pretty much tell yeah. you does not usually happen at any, <laughs> any brand. So we literally have a workshop and we just started building. So we had parts um, and whether that was plates or whether that was, uh, you know, clay or, um, Boa parts. We just had parts and we had different um, things we wanted. We knew we wanted to use to optimize different features, whether that was fit, traction, propulsion, cushion. And, and we just started building um, literally in the workshop. And then when we were done building um, in 3D, we literally just sent that directly to the, to the factory. <laughs> yeah. So that's a pretty different way of working, but when you're when you're taking a totally different approach, um, you know, that's okay to break the rules sometimes. So so, so how does it typically work? You yeah. might start with a design sketch or something. <laughs> <laughs> so, well cool. So you start with a design sketch probably after you get those consumer insights and then it's all about 
maybe working with the developer to figure out the materials and stuff. So maybe talk about that, Dave, expand so, on how yeah, you bring- So if you have the design sketch and, and you're working like uh, Brian said earlier, hopefully you're working kind of in lockstep, hand in hand, right from the start with, um, if you're at a bigger company, not Speedland, a bigger company, uh, you know, you're working with the PLM, with the developer um, and the designer all sitting at the same table. And hopefully even the, even the PLM is, uh, you know, selecting materials as well. Right. Mm -hmm. It, you almost, you almost don't want a delineation between any of those people. Like the developer should be part designer. The PLM should be part designer. The designer should be part marketer. So everything should, and I actually think even the developer should be part marketer too. I think the more crossover you can have, um, everybody can offer to the project and, but they'll offer it in slightly different ways. And those are always the most successful, right? Like I always want to, you know, let's all go out, let's go somewhere, let's brainstorm together. And hopefully it's a collective um, creation versus, um, you know, one, one person saying, oh, I, I did the sketch or something. Um, that, that's always better when it, when it comes together with multiple minds. Fascinating. And I think a great lesson for those who are listening who want to get their start in the industry. If you're into design, you maybe should also have some chops at marketing too, because it will probably make you a more valuable team member wherever you live. Well, yeah. And I mean, I, I don't want to, I haven't really talked about it, but you know, the, the, at least the key to, to my career and many others that have been around me is storytelling, right. Yeah. And understanding the why and why you do things and why, why, you, why something needs to be done and why would anybody even care about what you're doing? Yeah. Um, that, that stuff's really important. And, you know, uh, otherwise, uh, an old boss of mine named Gene McCarthy, who's um, actually a very accomplished runner, said, "Yeah, the, the world doesn't need another shoe brand, yep. you know, and I th uh, unless you're doing something unique and purposeful." And I think that's true. You know, you, you really need to have that why. And sometimes you see projects that are started, and if you can't say that why within one sentence, um, you know that you haven't. You know, you're not really doing the right thing. Yeah, awesome. So. Obviously, companies need to control their margins and have predictability of sales relative to past products and to competitive brands. So maybe, Brian, talk about where retail price comes into the picture through the design process. And then maybe we'll go to Dave to talk about how Speedland is taking a novel approach. Sure. Yeah. Ultimately, as part of kind of this consumer insights uh, and marketing insights, um, this is something that falls a little bit more on the shoulders of the PLM or the product line manager in terms of gauging where the price point of the shoe needs to land. And to Dave's point, I think it, it, it's very collaborative, right? And I think um, design has an input, development has an input, but we're trying to understand what are kind of the key competitors to the shoe that we want to build. And, and generally what's the, what's the appetite in the market? What's someone willing to pay for a product like this? And, you know, we kind of work back for backwards from there in terms of, okay, how much money do we ultimately have to play with to build this product? And a lot of times uh, newer products that are introducing new innovations, new foam compounds, they generally have a little bit more flexibility because processes are slower the technology is more novel. And so you have, um, you know, you can maybe get away with a slightly lower margin and a higher, uh, you know, kind of landed cost or um, uh, our, we call it our FOB, but essentially the, the cost of the landed cost of a shoe. Uh, and so you get a little bit more flexibility on that end, but ultimately, you know, you still have to roll it up to how it's going to uh, sell in a retail environment um, amongst its competitive set. And what are the, factors that go into that. Obviously, it's the material costs, the manufacturing costs, and probably the volume. Is that right? That exactly. goes into FOB? Yeah, yeah. We have what we call like an amortization cost, which is, um, you know, it goes into the number of molds that we have to open both for upper materials, uh, patterns, as well as the most expensive part, which are molds for midsoles um, and outsoles, and is basically the average cost of those. Is that what they call tooling? Exactly. Okay. <laughs> so, so Dave, maybe explain what tooling is and also talk about how Speedland took a very novel approach to this FOB phenomenon. Sure. Well, I'll talk tooling first. 
Yeah. Tooling. So, you know, every size, any, I mean, this is probably like pretty simple stuff and everybody probably understands this, but I'll just go over it real quick anyways, is that every size, you know, that's opened for, um, <clears throat> for a, a shoe, you know, take, take whatever shoe, um, you know, it has the, the bottom, the midsole and the outsole require tooling and, and that's basically a mold. So, you know, all the way from a, you know, very small size, you know, whether you're talking a, a three and a half, four, all the way up to a 13, 14, 15, you know, the, those all require molds and that's your tooling cost. And, and that can add up. That's a, you know, I'm living it. And that's a, that's, that's quite expensive stuff. So, um, and what you do is you amortize that unless you decide to pay the tooling up front, you amortize that over a certain amount of pairs. So obviously if you're doing, um, large amounts, so if you're doing a hundred thousand or you're doing a million in some cases, um, when you're talking about bigger brands, uh, that amortization, uh, it, it, it makes your tooling cost quite a bit less, but if you're doing a thousand pairs or you're doing 5,000 pairs, uh, your, your tooling amortization is going to be quite expensive, right? Cause you're amortizing over less pairs. Mm. So that's tooling. Uh, I won't go too into it, uh, deeper, deeper than that. Uh, but I will say, so Speedland, you know, we're kind of the opposite. We never really had an FOB, um, if I'm honest, and we never really had anything, um, that you normally would have. What we did have is we wanted to take a no compromise approach and just build or aggregate um, what we considered the best of the best um, at every turn, and that would determine our FOB, and that and um, and then we would determine our our size run ahead of time, uh, just based off how big we we call them commissions, how big we wanted to make the commission basically. So it is kind of an opposite approach, um, but that's, that's the way we approached it. Cause you know, the, the, and the reason we could do that and, and Brian touched on it is normally you have to take um, distribution into account, but at this time, you know, we're, we're mainly uh, a DTC brand uh, direct to consumer. So we control the, uh, the distribution side for the most part as well. So it's, it's a different business model um, for sure. Um, and, and, you know, giving it a go and seeing how it goes. <laughs> well, maybe this is a good time to actually talk about, the D to C concept versus traditional distribution. Obviously D to C is huge now. I mean, it's the, sort of the talk of every industry and through all different products that are coming to market, whether it's footwear or apparel or sunglasses or hats or anything D to C is, um, sort of a global phenomenon and even big brands like Nike and Adidas, and I'm sure probably Brooks are thinking about how they can have more of a direct relationship with their consumer. Brian, maybe you can talk about when you saw this sort of shifting and what some of the bigger brands are doing to pivot more to D2C. Sure. There, there was obviously a really big push to this um, when COVID hit, um, obviously with stores being shut down, uh, not being able to distribute through our normal retailers. But I think what became more important is how brands wanted to show up and really connect with consumers, with runners. And that kind of went back to a basic approach in terms of, um, you know, who are these runners that we're servicing? Who are these athletes that we're servicing? And really trying to be specific in terms of, um, you know, what their needs are, as well as what sort of product suits the type of activities they're doing. And, and this goes not just for footwear, but also apparel and accessories. And so, um, you know, it's, an, it, it's kind of a new muscle that the marketing team needs to flex in terms of how we look at data, how we aggregate data, and then um, what sort of uh, marketing tools are going to be used to be more personal to that consumer. So an email that I might get about a about the new trail shoe that's coming out from you know Brooks might be different than an email someone else someone else might get about a new road shoe because um, you know they're prim primarily a road runner versus me I'm primarily a trail runner so yeah. a little bit more targeted marketing in that sense. So going back to the design process, how much iteration is there? And maybe also since you've both worked on road product, just provide some comments on the design considerations that are specific to trail product. Dave, we'll start with you. Sure. Well, I mean, I think in a macro lens, right, is that with road product, you're really talking about a more of a linear motion, right? And, and that's why what you see with the, 
the super shoes and the, and the more rigid carbon plates, um, why that works so well, um, because you're, you're working off, well, multiple planes, but in, in a macro sense, you're working off one plane um, as far as, as going forward. And when you start talking about trail, um, that all falls apart, right? Because you're, you're landing on uneven ground, you're, you're talking about more lateral motions. You know, I, I, I won't say it's as, as extreme laterally, maybe as say basketball or, you know, a sport or a, or a cleated sport, maybe, but in some cases you are doing very similar motions, right. With how you're planting and, and, um, and whatnot, and, and the different, um, ground that you're on. So it's just very, very different. And, and it, they really aren't other than the biomechanics of, of running, <laughs> they are designed quite differently. Um, the, the traction obviously is designed differently. The, um, the hardnesses and the durometers and where you, where you want that, um, in relationship to, to where you strike and, and everything is different. The, uh, everything is different. The, the, ingress and, and the ingress and egress of, of, of uh, keeping stuff out of the, out of the, the shoe is quite different, right? Like how you would build an upper for the road um, is significantly different than how you would build it in, in trail. So I, yeah, I mean, from, from all aspects, I, I, I think you're, you're, you're solving quite different functional problems. Um, I don't know if you'd agree to that, Brian, but yeah. 100%. Brian, maybe talk about the iteration and prototyping process. And at what point athletes maybe come into the picture for you guys at Brooks? Sure. Uh, for us, we, we try and involve the athletes basically from day one. If we're going to, you know, if, we, if we're interested in coming to market with an all new trail shoe or an iteration to a trail shoe, we're trying to, you know, pull their insight and feedback in, you know, we're getting ready to work on you know, the, the Caldera six on its sixth iteration is getting ready to launch in a few months. We've already started, you know, iterating on the Caldera seven and, you know, Hillary and a number of the other athletes have been really involved in providing their feedback on the Caldera six, uh, to better understand, okay, like what are the modifications and tweaks that we need to make to, to take the shoot to the next level. And so, um, We'll normally go through two to three rounds of prototyping. So that's design, developing, prototyping um, before what we, you know, what we typically call a confirmation round. And that's where we get our final sample uh, in all the colorways that we're going to go to market with. Um, and then we have, you know, photo shoot samples. We have salesman samples that go out to key accounts uh, that they use to, um, you know, sell the shoe in to various retailers uh, and also showcase as part of different marketing campaigns. And so those two to three rounds of iterating generally take, um, you know, a little over a year, mm. um, you know, three to five months, depending on the project for one round of prototyping. Uh, and that, that, that goes through several design reviews, uh, development prototypes or, you know, rough prototypes that we call pullovers. And so you'll get these, you know, um, half pair prototypes in that are, you know, kind of built out of random materials, no real color sense, anything like that. And it's really just to try and better understand the construction, the fit. And then you start dialing these thin, these things in as a triad of like, oh, do we need this piece on the shoe? Or like, how much does this prototype weigh? Um, and then really starting to finesse the pattern from there. And then we, get, we you know, we'll ultimately get a pullover that we're all really happy with, uh, given the point in time in that development round. And then we will we'll tell our manufacturing partners, okay, here's what we want to build. And, you know, they'll typically have about a six to eight week lead time to build all these samples. And, you know, in that sampling round, we get, you know, all the colors that we created um, for that round, as well as a number of wear testing pairs because we want to be mm. testing continuously. And they're typically done in two sizes. Uh, there's a, a key women's size and a key men's size. And then as we get to later rounds, we kind of go beyond that. Uh, just because if we started with five or six sizes off the bat, that gets really costly because yeah. you know you're going to make revisions to uh, the sole unit, uh, to, to midsole molds. And um, so you have to be conscious of that from a budgeting standpoint. Wow, cool, fascinating. So I want to sort of move over to the manufacturing process, but before we do, I'm going to go to the chat here because there's a great question that I think is going to be 
relevant and important to a lot of trail runners. It comes from Troy Meadows, our boy in Petaluma. He says, the performance shoe market creates so much waste after the life of the product. Can Brian and Dave talk about the new technology coming down the pipeline to create a complete circle uh, and approach to product life cycle? Uh, maybe talk about any of the sort of sustainability efforts that are being made at Brooks and uh, and at Speedland. Dave, we can start with you. Sure. Well, with Speedland, I mean, we, we took a, you know, we were very cognizant of that from the start. And so we designed with end of life uh, in mind, and that's why we, we stitched the product together and use very little glue. So at the end of life, you can take it apart and recycle the parts accordingly. I think that's pretty unique in the industry. Um, there are materials that are getting, you know, to be more recyclable, uh, obviously uh, from all the different parts and you'll see brands that are attempting to, to do things around that, which is great. Um, but in our case, uh, you know, there's this balance of uh, making things recyclable and also making sure that keeping the highest performance possible. So, you know, we don't want to sacrifice performance necessarily, um, but at the same point, we want to make the smart decision around, um, you know, recyclability and what we can do. So that's kind of where we are right now is as, Anytime there's a material advance and we can, even if we have to spend more and use that instead of another material um, and get the same performance, we'll do it no matter what. But um, at this point, there's still some materials that, uh, you know, they haven't quite figured out how to, how to make them um, perfectly, let's say, recyclable, but the performance is still at a higher level. So that's what's happening. Advancements in materials are happening. And as those happen, you know, a lot... Um, Brands will make the choices to switch things out, and, um, and and you can see Brooks is working hard on that as well. So that that's kind of where we are. But um, I think just making smart choices from the beginning before you even create a product, um, and thinking about the uh, end of life that's that's the key to the whole thing. Yeah, and Dave, I've got two pairs of shoes. I got to drop by your house for you to break down and recycle for me. Brian, talk about the sustainability efforts that are happening over at Brooks. Yeah, it, it's quite massive, and I'm really proud of Brooks for taking the step forward. and And it kind of starts, uh, you know, it's 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 a multifaceted approach, and I can't really get into too many of the details, uh, but I will say that from the product team all the way to our manufacturing partners, there are really smart choices that we're we're starting to make. Um, you know, a really basic example of something that we do, in addition to using. 100% uh, recycled materials in the upper, um, you know, laces, trims, uh, uh, meshes for the, the upper, um, you know, we're also really cognizant of the material yield. So how we pattern the pieces of an upper to reduce the amount of waste or scrap, and then, you know, eventually creating um, kind of a, a stream of collecting the scrap product and being able to recycle that um, all the way to potentially utilizing renewable energy, um, water soluble uh, cements and primers. So being really diligent about the entire manufacturing process about minimizing waste. Um, Cause we do know that this industry, you know, does create a lot of waste um, and it's still a very manual process. You know, we're not, we're not there to this point where, um, the automotive industry is, or the medical industry is where everything is robotic. Um, we're still working with very soft materials that have a high kind of tolerance to them. And so just being really considerate in terms of our choices of materials, using, utilizing recycled options when possible, and then uh, working closely with our vendors, our suppliers to empower them to make uh, more sustainable choices. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm so happy to hear that technology and, and material advancements are occurring and that people at the big brands and at the small brands are considering this. And I think it's obviously very important to trail runners and trail consumers. So thanks for shining a light on that for us. So let's talk about manufacturing. So after sort of the prototyping is done, you're confident in the samples that you receive. What happens from there? Brian, we'll start with you. So we have this massive team uh, that we call uh, operations or commercialization manufacturing team. They consist of a lot of different functions, uh, production engineers, commercialization engineers, and 
a lot of times there's kind of this left seat, right seat ride during the product creation process, during design and development, where you do have a commercialization engineer. And their, their primary role is to figure out how you make, how you go from one to a hundred thousand mm. or 10,000 or a million pairs. And they're oftentimes providing suggestions that ensure the manufacturability of a certain product. If they're like, hey, actually, if you um, adjust the pattern, you know, a certain way, you know, the, the cutting efficiency is going to be a little bit better, or you're, you're going to waste a little bit less material, or you're going to utilize more of this piece of material, um, or it's going to be slightly faster to produce it this way without any detriment to performance. And so they're providing those, those sort of, um, that sort of feedback throughout the product creation process. And it's something that, uh, the product, the, the product teams, the triads, do have to have a high level of knowledge on because we have to consider this stuff from the get-go. Um, but the commercialization team is then responsible for figuring out how do we grade these sizes. So if we're starting with a women's eight and a half and a men's nine shoe size, you know, what does that mean when we grade these out to larger and smaller sizes in terms of the increments, um, as well as um, you know, building all the associated tooling to accommodate a larger volume. And then you're working with factory partners to figure out how many production lines you need uh, to build uh, the number of pairs that you forecasted. Um, and this is you know, done with multiple shoes at one time. So wow. the, the, the logistics game here is massive. And those teams you know, just have a tremendous amount of talent in terms of figuring this out to get shoes on the market. It, it's just like when shoes get to market, you're just like, that's impressive. Like, <laughs> yeah. just the, the logistical Sounds team. overwhelming to me. <laughs> yeah. So, so Dave, talk also about the manufacturing process. And one of the things that I'm particularly interested in is how you take that original vision and interface with the manufacturer in a way that gives you confidence that they're going to understand your vision and execute against it. Yeah. Well, yeah, in our case, in in, uh, in in Speedland's case, or I guess in any case, is the relationship with the factory is critical, right? And even more critical if you're trying to do something different that hasn't been done before. Um, and usually, um, in best case scenario, um, you want to be face to face, trying to do this in person, trying to explain things in person, uh, especially if you haven't done it before, because there is something lost. Um, you know, lost in translation, lost in communication if you're not in person on that. But um, if you if you have that and you have a great factory relationship, um, you know, the factory is is key to uh, to your success. Uh, they, they, you know, can't be underestimated in what they're doing. So with with Speedland, you know, that that was a huge part of it, having a, a relationship and having a, a trust with the factory that knew uh, what we were trying to accomplish. Yeah. So all over the news right now is the supply chain crisis. And I was going to ask you about this. And Cody Jett also asked in the chat about what's going on within the global footwear supply chain right now. Can you guys provide any color to that? Yeah. You want me to start? Go ahead, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think whether you're, you're big or small, um, I think, you're kind of in some ways dealing with the same situation, just at different levels, obviously. Um, and there are different, you know, if, if you're making stuff overseas and, and um, if, if say there's um, some sort of say problem going on in, in China, yes, you can, you can make stuff in Vietnam, but if there's that, that's same problem could be going on in Vietnam. And so it, it just shifts. Um, you know, I think what it's showing is, is, there could be a renewal in, in more localized manufacturing in the future, right? Because that's, that really starts to answer um, the needs and, and get after that when there are problems, if we can do stuff more locally, more regionally, uh, and it also goes back to the recyclability question um, and sustainability question, right? Because then you take the whole shipping uh, equation in a different, uh, different way as well. So I think that's where things are pushing and, and that's um, whether you're talking about footwear, whether you're talking about electronics, um, no, no matter what, you can see that brands are investing more regionally and locally. And um, that's, that's where I see things going in the future. Awesome. Ryan, did you want to add anything to that? 
supply yeah, chain think, issues? <laughs> sure. I think, um, you know, at a practical product level, uh, we're seeing lead times increase significantly with our suppliers. And so we just have to be really diligent about making uh, definitive choices early mm. and placing those material orders to our vendors, um, you know, much further ahead of time than we typically would. And it, it, it takes a little bit of wiggle room out at the very end in terms of making small tweaks here and there. So really it, 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 it forces the product teams to be really rooted in what you're doing and knowing exactly why you're doing it, because you might not get another chance to make that modification because you simply might run out of time. Wow. You have to consider the lead time um, extension that's been tacked on to really every product. Wow. I think, you know, Dylan, just that what's hard right now is things are really unpredictable. And like last week, um, uh, a province in, I'll just take a, uh, a province in, in China was was shut down for a week and um, because of, of some COVID restrictions, right? And 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 uh that happened to be uh where they make you know a good amount of iPhones. Yep. And and that's just unpredictable, right? Like you don't you don't know that's gonna happen and then it's gonna move on to another province, say. So it's just you can do all you want, but you don't know what you don't know anymore. And I think um getting like Brian, like you said, getting stuff ahead of time and being way ahead of it um, is just going to be the safer way until um, there can be more manufacturing back in the States. And that's all about doing things differently. Yeah. So real quick, because we got a question in the chat about this too, and I'll pull it up so that we give him the proper credits from Brian Fagundis. And he's asking about the economic and structural incentives that are in place to bring production and factories back to the U S obviously you both, reference the fact that most of the manufacturing is done in Asia. That's not a revelation across every industry. Are we seeing more of a push to reshore some of that manufacturing? Yeah. I mean, in the, I think it's a, it's a, it's a difference in scale too. So, you know, in the case of when you're talking smaller scales, like, like what we're trying to do at Speedland, yeah, it's, it's very real that that can be done mm. because you're working on a smaller scale and you're building stuff very differently so it can be done. I, I think it could, could be a little bit different conversation when you're talking hundreds of thousands, millions of pairs of shoes, mm. um, because you have to change the pro process drives new manufacturing. And so you actually have to change process. So I think it's a little, a, the a two different tales here, but um, I don't know, Brian, what you would say to that. Yeah. I, I would just add on to the, uh, to that by saying, you know, in, in addition to maybe bringing manufacturing, you know, closer to the U.S., it could be more regional manufacturing, you know, because we sell shoes all over the world. So mm. if there are more regional manufacturing hubs that are less dependent on one specific part of the world for manufacturing, that could help offset any sort of lead time issues. You know, product is built more regionally um, and requires um, a, a shorter lead time with shipping. Um, and so those are all opportunities that you know, brands are looking into to try and optimize that, um, uh, that, that delivery to the consumer, you know, and, as well as, you know, sustainability is a big part yeah, of that as yeah. well. Awesome. Know? Well, thank you guys. Yeah. I think that's uh, going to be an interesting to, thing to monitor here in the next mm -hmm. chapter of the footwear industry. So moving ahead. Okay. We've got the manufacturing done. The product is in the appropriate place. How do, how does sort of the product team then interface with the marketing team to tell the story and create campaigns that will hopefully touch the consumer, the customer, and hopefully drive sales? Dave, we'll start, start with you. Well, yeah. And I mean, in my, in my past life, I was trying to do that right from the start, honestly. So, you know, you have your, your, um, so we'll go, we'll go a level deeper here. You have your product line, man, uh, manager um, who's who's dealing with marketing from a product side. There's a whole nother marketing team <laughs> that's bringing this to life from a communication standpoint. Um, and whether that's big commercials or whether that's, you know, print or whether it's, you know, Instagram, whatever it is, there's a whole nother marketing team. Yep. And so the key is um, to also be interfacing with that team early on as well. Right. Because if they can help um, uh, help you along the way and start that story with them, 
then you have a cohesive vision right from the start. Where it often falls apart, in my experience, is when this is not a cohesive vision or where a different story is told at the end that is not the story that was conceived at the beginning. So the advice I would give here to, to anybody who's, who's working in, in this field or anything is to bring everybody along or work together right from the start. Um, so you, you tell the vision from the start, even though that seems crazy because that's, you know, 18 months away from when, when they're actually going to communicate this to the public. But that's really what you want to do because otherwise you get two different stories that are disconnected and then it's not authentic. And if something's not authentic, it's a failure. Wow. <laughs> it's that simple. Brian, you want to add anything there? I think Dave nailed it. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's starting. Yeah. You've got to have that communication, that interface, that connectedness with brand marketing from day one. Uh, they're receiving the same product brief that the rest of the product team is receiving uh, from that product triad. And, you know, I think when we're introducing new technologies, we really geek out with the brand marketing team on all the nuanced intricacies of what makes this technology special and imparting as much knowledge as possible. Yes, maybe the tagline will be, you know, one line, which it should be. It needs to be clear, direct, uh, and attractive to the consumer. But ultimately, that comes from a deep understanding of the technology and the product and the vision and the story. And so it's really important that they get all the details um, you know, along the way and that they're invested in the journey of the product, just like the, the product triad is. Amazing. Guys, this has been so fun. We should definitely do this again because I have a million other questions, but let's close with what's the feeling like to actually see your product come to life? Like what's the feeling like when you see somebody out on the trail rocking a pair of Speedlands or rocking a Cascadia or a Catamount? Brian, we'll, we'll start with you. What's that feeling of satisfaction like? It's a really amazing feedback loop. And I, and I think, you know, seeing someone run in product that you were able to touch is, um, is really humbling. And, you know, for me, it's always about, you know, if I have an opportunity to stop that person, Hey, like, just out of curiosity, um, what do you think about this shoe? I really want to know the things that you don't like about the shoe mm. so that I can make it better the next time, you know? And it's really just about having that casual conversation. It, it is really a fun uh, feedback loop to, to observe. And I think that's one of the cool things about product. Um, the funny thing though is, is you're generally, you know, working so far out that when you do see someone in the wild running on that, you're like, oh, I didn't realize that came to market. You're two years ahead. You're Yeah. So you're like, oh, wow, that's out now. I didn't know that, you know? <laughs> awesome. But, uh, yeah, it's fun. Dave, what about you? Over the course of your career, there's got to be some awesome highlights of things that you've worked on, you know, seeing them on Tom yeah. Brady's feet or Steph Curry's feet or what's it like, you know, as somebody who's been a creative since you were a kid and always trying to understand how things are built to actually see what you've built come to life physically? Yeah, I mean, it's always, I mean, it's always cool whether, you know, it's it's always cool to see stuff on it, obviously a superstar of, of high caliber like that, but it's just as cool. I, I ran a race in January and about, I don't know, 15 or 16 miles in, I ran up next to somebody wearing Speedlands who, you know, I did not know. And, you know, I was wearing them and he looked down and he's like, Hey, you're wearing Speedlands like me. I'm like, yeah. What do you think of them? You know? And then we had a conversation for another couple of miles, you know, where, where we ran together. So, you know, I think, you know, it's, it's equally cool no matter who it is. And um, you just, you have some sort of, I don't know how to, how to quantify in words, but some sort of appreciation for it, you know, um, because a lot of work went into the product and, and it's, it's kind of the, it's better than any award or anything else to see it on people out really. Yeah. Rad. Well, guys, this has been so much fun for those who are watching the SLHSV is out now. It sounds like the new Caldera is coming out very soon. So check out what these guys have been working on. Dave, I'm expecting my prototypes here very soon. It was a very top secret thing. No pressure, but we just got something something in today, Dylan. <laughs> I'll be on, I'm on my way over. Uh, no, but guys, this has been an absolute pleasure. Really appreciate your expertise and your ability to sort of capture the essence of it and explain it in a way that even 
idiots like me can understand. Thanks everybody for watching. Really appreciate you for being here. Um, Dave, Brian, great to see you. Have a great weekend. Everybody else, we'll catch you very soon. Bye.